Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. When this program is broadcast, it will be January 2nd, 2016. This program is being pre-recorded Wednesday afternoon because our guest has a live program of his own overlapping our broadcast time. So with modern technology, you can almost be in two places at once. Billy Roper was once a high school history teacher and has degrees in history and political science. To our listeners, that may sound like he should be thoroughly indoctrinated, but this time that is not the case at all. He had already read Mein Kampf in high school and seems to have had both a racial and political awakening at a young age. We do not know how that happened in rural northern Arkansas, and we hope that he tells us. Billy has been involved with popular party politics at the organizational level, and has even run for statewide office himself, all while being a national socialist at heart. Roper has been engaged in pro-white and nationalist political activism for 20 years now, and is also the author of a collection of novels and historical novels centered around themes related to that very cause. His novels address issues which are familiar to identity Christians, but are nevertheless appealing. They may certainly also be useful tools for waking people up to our message who would not otherwise read dry academic writings. His books are available in mainstream venues such as Amazon.com and Barnes and & Noble. And that also pushes his political ideas into the public eye. We could not help but notice that many of his titles are available for the rather symbolic sum of $8.88, so even his prices have a message. Billy's active career in nationalist causes took him out of the teaching profession and along the road from the Birch Society and the Council of Conservative Citizens to the National Alliance and eventually onto Christian identity. He has had personal associations with the late William Pierce and with Richard Butler, and continues to remain engaged with people from across the entire spectrum of pro-white political and religious persuasions. One of his past endeavors, called the White Revolution, was an umbrella group which seems to have sought to organize many pro-white groups politically in spite of their differences. More recently, Billy was associated with the Knights Party, and among his most recent projects is a collaboration with Paul Mullet and Divine Truth Ministries. Billy Roper, welcome to Christiania. Thanks for having me, Bill. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for being here. It, it's um, I, I read the biographical portion of your book, The Ice Path. I have not had the time to read the entire book, but I would like to. When I read Chapter 8, I actually saw a lot of political parallels, philosophical, philosophical parallels with my own past, even though my circumstances were practically the, the exact opposite of your own. 
The racial awakening and the love for the German national socialist cause at a young age, the survivalist mindset of the 1980s waiting for something big to happen. Paladin Press, college Republicans, I was reading their newspaper back in the early 90s on the internet when it first became public, even though I never went to college. We seem to have traveled in all the same vehicles, but on completely a completely different set of tracks. It, it seems to right. me that most people who have come to racial awakening um, came along that similar path back in the 70s and 80s, and, and I'm sure that we would like to hear about your own. How, how does a, a young boy from... A, a very white northern Arkansas, and, and I may be wrong, you may have lived further to the south in your youth, but you were on a farm. It, it seems to me that that's not the place for a young racist to grow up or to, for somebody to have a future like your own. Right. Well, you know, Bill, it's the whole nature versus nurture argument, I guess. I was fortunate, as you know, uh, as you indicated, Arkansas is really two different states. The south half of the state is majority black, and the northern half of the state is majority white, overwhelmingly so. But my parents had specifically moved to the northern white part of the state from the southern black part of the state to get away from diversity. And back then, there wasn't the Internet, where you, you could not Google a community and find out its racial percentage. You had to actually go to the county courthouses and pull up the census information forms, and that's what they did, and they found what they believed to be one of the whitest counties in Arkansas, and specifically moved there for that reason, and so my father and his father before him, just like my mother's father, were Klansmen, and my, my father was active until the late 60s when he felt that the Klan had been too heavily infiltrated by the FBI to continue to be a efficient organization. So he basically dropped out the movement, but he maintained his ideals and his beliefs, passed them on to me, and of course my mother was and is racially conscious still to this day as well. So I was very fortunate to have a, a racially conscious upbringing, even though I was not around non-whites personally on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, I did not come to my racial awakening because, you know, I was mugged or bullied on the playground or any kind of negative experience with uh, non-white. I came to my racial awakening either because I inherited some kind of, you know, <laughs> instinctive sense of wanting to preserve my own kind, which I think a certain percentage of every generation inherits, or because I was fortunate enough to have racially conscious parents who taught me right from wrong and taught me my colors, as we say down here. So um, I, I was raised to be racially conscious. But... I was raised also as a Southern Baptist and, you know, a fundamentalist Southern Baptist upbringing is very conservative, um, but there's the one hinge that uh, you and I have discussed before, which I'm sure you're very aware of, it's the Judeo factor of uh, Judeo-Christianity. And Southern Baptists, who now have a black president for their association, even then, were kind of nudge-nudge, wink-wink, marginally racially conscious, except for the fact that they were Judeophiles and Zionists, really, and still are. And so I had a, a pretty healthy upbringing, except for that, and so I, 
became somewhat disenchanted as a teenager. I was very politically conscious and read and studied politics, current events, and a news junkie, even when I was a teenager. So um, I began to compare what I observed about the world around me with what I was told in church. And of course, like everyone does, even those who aren't religiously raised with what I was taught in school, but I found that there was a disconnect between the collective actions that I observed of Jews in promoting things like open immigration and abortion and pornography and every social ill imaginable. And it was really before I came to understand, you know, like the, the cultural critique idea according to a single seed line or according to a dual seed line, they just can't help because of their nature, because they're, you know, like their father the devil. But I did know that they were acting in a collective way that was against the interests of my people and against the interests of my nation. I was very patriotic. Uh, I was 12 years old in 1984 when I had the opportunity to go to a campaign rally for Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. in Little Rock and had a very brief opportunity to meet Ronald Reagan. You said a passing moment. But as a 12-year-old young man who was interested in politics, it was a trigger for me. And it, it heightened my sense of dedication, if you will, to that interest, that direction. And so I began to see that these people that call themselves the Jews were working against the interest of our nation as well as our people. And as a patriot, that affected me deeply as well. And I, I saw these people that I otherwise respected in church, church leaders, being very hypocritical, supporting a people, saying that you cannot criticize the people collectively who are undermining our nation, undermining our race, and destroying us. And that, in fact, you know, that if you curse them, that God will curse you. And so I was really struck by that to the point that I, frankly, eventually, gradually became apostate. I actually drifted away from faith. And that was why, for many years in my adult life, I researched, you know, alternate faiths and belief systems and basically could be could have been considered a, an agnostic for a lot of my adult life, and it took many, many years to find my way back to faith. Well, well, that's interesting because that was in my line of questioning your, your fall away from Christianity, which I think was what was um, pretty much cemented, according to your book, by the time you were sixteen. Is that why right. you read Mein Kampf in high school? It was because I, I was trying to get alternate views of the people who call themselves Jews. And, of course, you know, when you're a teenager and you're raised racially conscious on everything except for the Jewish question, then, you know, it's natural to go to, I think, that as a primary source, for sure. And so I did. And what happened, actually, was that um, my dad had been transferred. I was going to high school in Indiana at the time. I was on the debate team, so I was you know, very active, but I actually read Mein Kampf because when you are a southerner and going to school in northern Indiana and they hear your accent, they immediately 
deduct 20 IQ points from their assessment of you, and so you have to struggle. And so I was kind of a little bit out of my element, a little bit out of my sorts, and uh, I guess I was um, trying to find a direction there by reading Mein Kampf, and at that point is when I basically began to become a skinhead. The, the um, well, well, we'll talk about skinheads uh, momentarily. That the um, the 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 experience you had at a young age with Christianity. I'm, I mean, it's it's to your credit that you noticed that hypocrisy as a teenager. That the same experience it is found commonly among whites who actually care for their own people and, and forces a lot of people to fall away from Christianity in general. Uh, I mean, it, it, it takes a long time to come around to the understanding that identity Christians have. And and it, it's a shame, but by then most people who are racially aware have had such a dose of hypocrisy from Judeo-Christian churches that they never want to hear about Christianity again. Right. You and I could probably point to many people that are racially conscious, have probably healthy racial instincts, but they have endured so much of the hypocrisy from Judeo-Christian megachurches and Zionists that you know, they're combative to Christian identists. They're even more bitter towards us than they are, I think, towards the Jews um, because they interpret that as having been betrayed and they see Christianity not as being something racial and organic and natural and healthy as we know it to be. But they see it as being something which only serves the interest of the Jews. And a lot of them never break free of that. And so that's why you have, you know, so many Odinists and creators today. And I, I try to reach out to them. I don't proselytize constantly, but I, I try to be friendly with them. And, and the reason why, all of them know that I'm a Christian identist. I don't hide that. But at the same time, only a decade ago, I was in missions. And so I, I would never, you know, be so arrogant as to compare myself to Paul. But if you think about the transformation that he made, and I didn't get blinded on the road to Damascus. It was more of a gradual process. But if you think about the turnaround in that guy's life from Saul to Paul, he went from persecuting Christians to, you know, becoming the living apostle, then we can see that these people who are hostile to the Christian identity message are really feeling what I felt a decade ago. And so maybe more than some people, I feel like I can really empathize with them. I understand what they're thinking and feeling because I was there not so long ago in the whole you know, big span of time. And so I can reason with them and discuss with them the same way that it was discussed with me, I think. And I have to, I give credit actually to Pastor Butler more than anyone else. His personal conversations with me and his approach to me was one of love and openness and friendliness and rationality and pragmatism in a way that helped me to begin to recover my faith 
and not and self-righteousness. Exactly. If he had come at me in anger or in judgment and attempted to be critical of me, and I understand that as Christians, you know, that we are supposed to attempt to change the minds and hearts of non-believers, regardless of what the reason for the non-belief might be, and we almost feel like they are naturally our enemies. It's hard to avoid that feeling, especially when there are among some of them such deep feelings of hostility being expressed towards us. But if Pastor Butler had come at me like that, then I would probably, I would almost certainly still be an agnostic faith. And the fact that he did not, I think, showed me a better way of discussing with people that they can return to faith too. That there is no contradiction between Christianity and nationalism or being racially conscious and serving God. As a matter of fact, if you actually understand what the Bible is about being a racial book and that the racial message and God's kingdom are one and the same, then it's seamless, it's organic and natural. But I feel like, and other people might not like this or agree with me, and that's fine, but for my purposes, I feel like the way that Pastor Butler treated me was more effective than any other way he could have, and so if I were to emulate his approach, I think that I might be more successful. And what I found, and I'm not you know, trying to count my converts or anything like that. But what I found is that when I speak to non-believers that way, in love and brotherhood and sisterhood, and expressing to them that I understand what they feel because I was there not too long ago, and working with them on racial issues and overcoming our differences or stepping aside them and not even, not even bringing it up sometimes, but them knowing who I am and them seeing I guess you could say my testimony is a witness that I am a racially conscious activist for our people, a white nationalist by anyone's definition of the term, who is also a Christian identity. And there's no contradiction. As a matter of fact, they feel one another. That well, is well, a better I, testimony, I think, than being hostile and angry to them. I try to show people or, or, or express all the time in, in my articles that Christianity, real Christianity is nationalism. And of course, true Christianity is white nationalism. But, but it's hard when, when, when somebody has a, such an indoctrination. Even the atheists and the agnostics have that indoctrination into Judeo-Christianity. And, and they believe the God of Judeo-Christianity, who is no God at all, because no God would, would, um, no righteous God would seek to destroy his own creation. I mean, that would make no sense at all to me. There are people who know you superficially who may get the impression that you are a pagan or even a secularist because of your past, for the most part, and because... I don't think we should have to wear our Christianity on our lapel or on our on our shirt sleeve. If we do, then it becomes a facade. We should actually have it um, 
ingrained into the fabric of our emotions in life and not just in words like Adolf Hitler didn't go to church he he, he wasn't a church christian church christians aren't christians that they, they they honor god with their lips and and not their actions that's my full opinion and and that is cohesive to the teachings of christ and the political philosophy and, and life philosophy of Adolf Hitler and, and other great Christians. That the, the public impression though it is that you may be a pagan or a secularist because you don't wear your Christianity on your shirt sleeve. And, and that's immaterial to Billy Roper of today. You spent a long time, though, with, with with the National Alliance because of your disaffection before your Richard Butler days, before you met Pastor Butler. You spent a long time with um, William Pierce and the National Alliance and skinheads and amongst pagans. And, and maybe that would give you a, a, a much better understanding than somebody like me who, who really only has... Um, short and intermittent contacts with such people usually ending in arguments that the um, <laughs> it, it might be to your benefit in dealing with those people for sure to have been um, counted among their number and, and so deeply involved in them at one time and, and perhaps you can tell us a little about that and a little about William Pierce and, and your experience with him Absolutely, I'd be happy to. You know, I, I think that as a Christian, with a Catholic seat, being Christian identist, we always use this cliche phrase of preaching to the choir. But, you know, there are so many Christian identists who take that verse about, you know, coming out from among them to mean that they no longer want to even talk to people who have been disaffected or who have become apostates or actually living away from faith. And they actually become just as hostile towards them as they are towards us. I don't think that's successful. I don't think that's furthering God's kingdom. It's really not helping the best interest of our race. And some of these people, because if we want to, as Christian identists, be completely honest with ourselves, and we have to also kind of police our own ranks. And I, I'll go out on a limb and say, Bill, that there are people in Christian identity today, especially in the United States, and you know some of them, who, as soon as they decide that they're going to call themselves a Christian identist, they also want to call themselves a pastor, or or at least be referred to as brother this. And I, no matter how many years I am a Christian identist, and how much I read and study, I don't feel like I will ever claim that title of pastor, even if I go through three or four ordainments, formally or otherwise, which I don't really intend to do, I'm, I'm per perfectly content to be a Christian identist layperson, but there are, there are a lot of Christian identity people who are just as much in it for the title and the self-righteousness as they are for any sincere faith, and I sincerely believe that's the problem. But... Those people wear it on their sleeve, and they will browbeat even a fellow Christian identist who 
has a different opinion about dietary laws or feast days or what day to have church. And they get the same kind of secular dogma and breaking down into factions and denominations that plague mainstream churches so that, you know, in a town you'll have a Baptist church, a second Baptist church, a Google Baptist church, a Mission Baptist church, and all of that, you know, ten churches in one town of in the South, you have a town of 500 people who have 10 churches, you know? So it's the same kind of denominational fighting within Christian identity as is within mainstream Christianity. I think it's because of those kind of personalities, ego-driven, self-righteous people. Well, well so, that, is, that is true. I want to be... Um, I want to be measured by the quality of my work and not by some title or or, or some um, so, some grand exalted position I want to give myself I, I, we should not be self promoters and, and I don't use titles and, and anything right. like that I just want to be Bill that's all I want to exactly. be right because somebody exactly. has to call me something to get my attention <laughs> the, absolutely so that's why, and I understand that because of my past and my agnosticism, that some people might think that, you know, because I don't wear my faith on my sleeve all the time, I'm not constantly preaching or attempting to, um, you know, I'm okay with the fact that people have to actually judge me by my actions rather than by my claim to be a Christian identity. I'm really okay with the fact that people, when they first meet me or when they're first talking to me, are not going to get a sermon as the first thing that comes out of my mouth. I'm really okay. I'm fine with that. Because I, I think, like you said, um, you know, being Christ-like is something we are all supposed to aspire to, and I am one of the worst people in the world. I am a very flawed and imperfect man, but I try every day, consciously, to be better, to be more Christ-like, and I try to strip myself consciously of pretense and to remain raw and honest and true and sincere and so people when they talk to me or when they're friends with me or when they're involved in a political event or project or rally with me are not going to first hear a sermon I'm not going to quote Bible verses to them after that and I'm okay with people you know they're used to that other approach wondering if I'm, you know, sincerely a Christian identist because I don't prophesize that way. But I would really rather people see that I'm a Christian identist, but I reach out to others who are not. I work with them for the common good of our race. And if I'm able to persuade some of them if nothing else, to not be hostile to our message. If nothing else, to not, you know, try to think of us as their enemy. And I think that's a positive thing. 
at this point in my life, to be honest, I am working more on my own self-improvement than I am anything else. And it's through my self-improvement as a Christian that I can become a better testimony or a better witness to those who are not. Then I think that will kind of be a natural outgrowth of my work towards self-improvement. But when I was, I guess, first involved with the National Alliance, I joined in about 1994. And at that point, I I was never, you know, like a Bible-burning atheist, but I had serious doubts. And I know that all of us, regardless of the depth of our faith, sometimes have doubts or questions. And I think that, in a way, as long as it doesn't open the door for the devil to come in and destroy our faith or erode the foundation of it, I think that seeking knowledge and wisdom and understanding is not only healthy, but something that we're called to do as long as we accept the truth that there are some things that we are never going to know, and that's fine. As a matter of fact, there are some things we're not supposed to ever know, at least not now, not until we're ready to have them revealed to us. But searching for wisdom, I think, is a good thing. But I, I really like to I, say that uh, I'm confident with what I know and comfortable with what I don't. Right, right. And so it was in 1994 that I was, uh, I first joined the National Alliance, and, and like you said, it's through buying a copy of Turner Diaries to the back of uh, a book catalog, I think, Calvin Press, and then, you know, filling out the membership application in the back of the book. And um, I was uh, still in college at the time, I was undergrad, and I was pretty active there for the last two or three years that I was an undergrad, um, doing flyer distributions, meeting with other members, having statewide meetings. The Internet was just getting started. And so I helped to to found something called the the National Alliance Internet Response Group, which was an opportunity to build people's online debating skills against anti-racists by teaching them how to respond to common anti-racist arguments. And then going to different social media forums and publicly debating anti-racist, of course, as always, not because you are interested in their opinion, but because of the audience, people who might be watching, and the way you can influence them. So I did that for a couple of years, and then I became the leading activist for the National Alliance in Arkansas, became the state leader there, and um, I graduated, and worked as an armed security guard for a while and then eventually found a teaching job in the southern part of the state in a school that was majority black and uh, was a teacher there for a year. And that experience led me to be convinced that I needed to go back to grad school and finish my master's so that I wouldn't have to do that anymore. I thought that, you know, if I was able to actually teach first in junior college and then a four-year college where people were paying to be there, it might be a little bit less glorified babysitting than uh, in a majority black high school I had been in. So I went back to grad school and finished my master's and uh, had just finished defending my thesis, actually, in 2000 when um, actually Will Williams, who is currently the, ma- the chairman of the National Alliance, called me up and said that their current membership coordinator was no longer going to be working there and um, in the midst of the drama of his leaving, 
there's going to be a job opening. And Dr. Pierce had asked if I would come to the leadership conference. That was April 2000. And so I did. And um, I went there with no intention of staying. I, I rode out there with three or four other members from the state. I had one suitcase, you know, maybe three changes of clothes. And got there, and at the conference, Dr. Pierce asked me to stay on and accept the position, and I did. And um, I worked there at the National Alliance organizing rallies and demonstrations and protests primarily, but also keeping the members active and recruiting new members uh, from then until uh, right after his death in 2002, a couple of years later. And uh, Dr. Pierce was um, not a Christian. He was pretty pragmatic about religion and faith. A lot of people had this misconception that because he wrote about and spoke about cosmotheism, that he was a, a great believer in it as an actual religious faith. And there are some people today who latch on to it as being a, a alternate religion. But um, let me just say that that was not the case. Dr. Pierce was not a, a man of faith at all. And he certainly did not see cosmotheism as being an actual religion, per se. To be frank, it was an attempt at a tax write-off. But uh, um, there's some people today who would just swear that it's an actual religious philosophy. It's not. It never was. Um, but, you know, then after 2002, there was a, a difference of opinion and tactics and strategy between myself and some other people who were also high-ranking members of the organization. And there was a struggle for control. And myself being at that point, I guess, more naive than I should have been about the internal Machiavellian machinations of the Byzantine court process, I lost and got fired and came back to Arkansas, where I found in White Revolution, which as you mentioned earlier, was intended to be an umbrella coalition, if you will. And by that I mean what had been successful in the rallies and protests that I had done over the previous two years, especially on the East Coast. We had several demonstrations in Washington, D.C. at the Israeli embassy and then culminating in the largest gathering of white nationalists in our nation's capital since World War II at the U.S. Capitol in August of 2002. Over a thousand white nationalists were there, and that's not been matched since. Why we were that successful was because I was willing to work with every organization that would work within certain parameters. I would set some ground rules, but for the most part, whenever you're trying to build a political organization, most people don't have the interest or stamina for the long haul. But they are able to work up the gumption to come to one event or one rally. So you cannot really build a massive white nationalist organization in the United States, not in the Internet era when people can have their philosophical and psychological need for socialization satisfied through a forum or a website and can also disseminate their ideas through websites. There's no really inherent social need for an organization, and there's not as much of an educational need for an organization as there was years ago. So the Internet's been a double-edged sword when it comes to organizations. It's disseminated our message and spread it 
move the dialectic more towards the right as our messages are spread and the means of our messages are spread, but at the same time, the means and effectiveness of organizations, per se, have been really undermined by the Internet uh, for precisely the same reason. They're not really necessary anymore. So rather than trying to have a huge, massive membership organization, my idea was that for specific events, one time only, you could get a lot of different individuals and a lot of different smaller organizations to come together for a rally or a protest. And if you, you know, wanted to do a white car music concert afterwards, that'd be a good draw. People like that, and provide the face-to-face -face socialization that comes with it, and um, use the social media aspect of the internet and email to promote and advertise the rally before, during, and after. So that was the tactic behind the inspiration for white revolution as an umbrella coalition. And, well, as you know, Bill, being at all on a leadership level in the white nationalist movement then and now is just really like hurting cats. There are so many ego-driven people, like I mentioned before, and some of it's legitimate, because, you know, if you, if you found an organization, regardless of how small it might be, and how unimportant to the big scheme of things it might be, that's your baby. And if you put your blood and your sweat and your tears and you raise this baby up and you really put your life, then you are not at all interested in allowing anyone else to have any influence or control over your baby or adopting it out and allowing people to make rules about what you can wear to a rally and what flag you can wave and what chants you can do. So I found that Really, in this thing of ours, you know, there are far too many chiefs, not enough Indians, and everyone's got an axe to grind, and there are personality conflicts, and bad blood, and feuds, and it was really a challenge, even for the, the purposes of one event or one rally at a time, to keep those ducks all headed in the same direction. But um, it was effective for a while, and then... It was not so much. And I had to look at how the movement itself, the white nationalist movement, had changed because of the rise of the Internet and what the erosion of membership organizations meant for what I was doing. And at the time, I felt that the best possible use of activism was in spreading our message, not building a membership organization, and that spreading our message could be done just as effectively through guerrilla marketing and guerrilla publicity tactics, you know, using white power jujitsu, using the enemy's controlled media strength against itself, rather than trying to get a thousand or even five hundred or hundred people together to stand outside a uh, building and yell at people, you know. So I kind of felt like white revolution had run its course. And um, I voluntarily disbanded it and joined uh, Pastor Thomas Robb's The Night's Party. Um, they have you know, some media capability, and um, I thought that, that was promising. And um, I went in that direction. But it's not to say that I, I don't think that protests and rallies and demonstrations don't have their place or their usefulness primarily, and this is still ultimately true primarily in getting media attention for a specific message. 
I really think that in this era, the opportunity to meet every person that we need to meet is limited. And that's limited by our own resources, by our time, by our financial resources, by our numbers, as well as by their interest. But we can reach more people through the control group. And so, for example, if you do a flyer distribution, and that flyer upsets people, and they call the newspaper, and the newspaper prints the text of the flyer, well, you know, there's going to be a certain percentage of those people who read that paper who are going to agree with a lot of the text that's reprinted from that flyer, and if they're silly enough to reprint a website URL or even the name of an organization that someone can Google into a computer and find the website, then those people can be spoken with absent the Jewish media buffer and can be spoken with directly and share our message without those filters. So I believe that using direct grassroots activism, things like old-fashioned literature and like the red balloon releases that are done through the White Lives Matter program are very effective still today because they are an opportunity to use a basic foundational message. Like with White Lives Matter, it's a direct response to the Black Lives Matter protesters and demonstrators, but it's very simple, very organic that White Lives Matter, it's not saying that other people's lives don't matter any more than Black Lives Matter is saying that other people's lives don't matter. But if they can say that, of course, one would think that rationally we should be able to as well. And people can very easily latch on to the basic concept of that, the White Lives Matter, especially when you have an opportunity to talk about you know, black-on-white crime rates and the genocide of our people rape of white women, generational rape statistics. These are issues that, you know, Joe Sixpack and Sally Soccer Mom can really feel. They can really, really appreciate because you present yourself then as a member of the community, as their neighbor, as a, a father or a mother of kids that you're concerned about the future of, and not as a Hollywood Nazi that's you know, out there Sieg Highland, goose stepping, waving his walking. Right. So, so you're focused on organizing single issue events that highlight one particular, um, what well, one particular theme that that's favorable to our cause. In in a nutshell. I think so. I think so. And especially, you know, not to be reactionary. But we live in a media age and in a social media age when reacting to what is in the headlines is an automatic end. It's, uh, it's like a, an automatic task key into people's consciousness. Because when we say white lives matter, it automatically mentally clicks with people who've been hearing for months, black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter. And you say white lives matter, it latches on, it piggybacks, but at the same time, it says, well, sure, if one, then the other, logically. That's all unfair. And then if you combine that as an opportunity to tell people about, you know, the Shannon Newsom or You know, I was in a grocery store just a few minutes before we began talking, and this week's cover of People magazine has a picture 
of that Jessica girl, the blonde girl from Tennessee who was uh, burned to death yes. by Miss, blacks, and they've already arrested 17 in the case. That, that, that picture and that crime, which the controlled media had very effectively ignored, is now, I think largely because of people through social media and the Internet talking about it repeatedly, is now on the front page of People Magazine. A, and that's a year a, and a half late, it, maybe. Two years late. Yeah. And that's a, obviously black-on-white crime. So we can combine talking about interracial crime where whites are the victims with the statement that white lives matter. And you can compare that with Trayvon or Michael Brown, and there's no comparison because there are thousands of white women and children every year in America who are rich and murdered by blacks and not for any kind of economic reason but specifically crimes of violence that are racially motivated. Right. And if we had a fair justice department, it would be considered hate crimes. That, well, that's why we have... That, there's a lot of um, reasons why we have no political solution. And, and there's a lot of reasons why I, I think that everybody that comes to one form of conscious awakening or another, whether it be Christian identity or even... Odinism or World Church of the Creator, whatever it is that they suddenly want to be a chief and, and right. not an Indian. And, and I really think that's because, and I've seen this pattern a thousand times already, and, and I've only been actively involved outside of prison in this for seven years. Don't get me wrong. I spent 12 years in prison studying. The, the seven years that I've been here out, out in the world in, in white nationalism and Christian identity, I, I've noticed that when somebody comes to an awakening, they think that the awakening just started with them. Right. So they want to immediately get on a soapbox and become teachers of this great awakening and, and become the angels of, of a, a new message of salvation thinking that it just started with them, not realizing that there are people that have been around with, with, with this awakening and, and study and, and um, like the Christian identity view of history and religion or whatever for, for 40, 50 years. Exactly. <laughs> and and what's interesting going along with that is that not only do they think that they have responsibility or a drive, motivation to teach, but the flip side of that, the negative side of that, is that not only do you have people who are not qualified wanting to be leaders, but six months later, if the revolution hasn't happened and we don't have a white nationalist president in the White House, then they lose all hope and faith and drop out and you never hear from them again. So that's why you have this revolving door in the movement because people become disenchanted because, you know, we're all kind of, even those of us who are persons of faith and believe in something larger than ourselves, we all kind of believe in some small part of our hearts that the universe revolves around us, that we're the center of the cosmos. There's a human failure in that. But people then think that if they're involved in something, if they're dedicated to it, if they're committed to it, and putting their heart and soul and blood and sweat and tears into it, then it's going to be successful. It's got to be because it's the center of their world for that time. And then six months later, when everyone else isn't, you know, seat-hauling them and marching behind them to 16 on Pennsylvania Avenue, then they lose all faith People are, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep when it comes to their passion and their dedication to most things in general. People are emotionally driven. That's just 
human condition. But when it comes to a cause like this that is not popular, that requires some level of sacrifice, if you're in it for the movement and not for the scene, and I've always told people that you really have to watch out and make sure that you know the difference between being in the scene and being in the movement. But if you're in the movement, then you know, there's not a lot of intrinsic rewards involved. And then after six months of that sacrifice, if you're not successful, then a lot of people give up. And so we've got this revolving door. But absolutely, it's a problem that we have, and I guess it's probably been a problem. It's probably a problem when they're trying to decide whether the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks were going to win. And it's a problem when they're trying to decide whether the Free Corps or the brown shirts or the SS were going to win their little struggles. But there have always been those who thought that they wanted to be the chief when really they should have taken a half step back and been satisfied with being Indian. Well, well, that's right. White nationalism and, and even Christian identity have had far too many chiefs and, and far too few Indians. And, and is that the other dynamic is that that there have been no lasting organizations. And I believe there's a greater lesson behind all of this. But there have been no lasting organizations. Wesley Swift's church died with Wesley Swift. Bertrand Compare's church, William Gale's church, died with Compare and, and Gale. And, and um, I know people personally, several people who listen to my programs, were, were members of Gale's church or Compare's church and, and have been mostly loners without a compass since those men passed. And and um they 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 floated from place to place, right? And and the right. um the same thing is true of Richard Butler, all of the division, all of the um Indians who wanted to step immediately into the chief role when he died and, and the divisions and fractures that caused. It it's it, it's a given, as you described in your book, the, the, the ice path, that these organizations are basically personality cults centered around a particular individual. When the individual disappears, the cult is left in a struggle and, and ultimately just disintegrates. Absolutely. You know, I remember when, when Dr. Pierce was dying, he was literally on his deathbed. He, frankly, he pulled Alexander the Great. <laughs> if you remember, Alexander the Great was uh, 27 years old. He conquered half the known world and three-quarters of Asia. He wept at one point because there were no more countries to conquer. But he was dying at a young age and did not have an heir. And all of his generals gathered around him, and they said, Lord Alexander, to whom do you leave your empire? And he said, to the strongest, refused to leave an heir. Now, what that meant was that, you know, his empire got divided up. And so you had, like, Ptolemy, as you know, you know, took over in Egypt and the surrounding area and formed the Ptolemaic Empire. And then, heck, his granddaughter was Cleopatra and she started all over again. But, you know, the whole empire of Alexander that he had spent his life creating was split up into six different parts. Now, with Dr. Pierce, he was one of the greatest men that I've ever known. His intelligence, his wisdom, and his wit 
cannot be overstated and have often been underestimated. I will, however, say this. His lack of choosing a successor was a conscious choice. And it was a conscious choice, I believe, because of his favorite quote, which was the subtitle of his biography, referring to a line in the Havamal. And it says basically that cattle die and kindred die and all men die. The only thing that lives forever is the fame of a dead man's deeds. And so I, I won't go much further deeply into that. I'll let people draw their own conclusions, but that is what I feel was the motivating factor in Dr. Pierce not consciously choosing a successor. Well, well, that's interesting. I, I didn't. I, I still don't know anything about William Pierce except for some of his work, but which I feel was very good for its time. And aside from that, I often try to. Um, build bridges with white nationalists, secular white nationalists, um, Odinists, and usually those bridges end up getting burned down, right? Uh, I've <laughs> talked to creators, I've talked to National Alliance people. Many of my listeners believe that pagans and, and atheists are impossible because of the barriers to morality combined with a hatred of Christianity which many of them steadfastly maintain. And and one example of one of those bridges being burned down was um, about three or four years ago when Carolyn Yeager, who, who's a white nationalist that, that floats, she, she doesn't really, she, she's friendly to Christianity sometimes and sometimes she has antipathy for it and she really has no set system of her own or belief of her own that, that can be put into concrete terms. But anyway, Carolyn Yeager invited me to participate in a program with Will Williams. And um, mm -hmm. he immediately became condescending and tried to categorize me with some of the um, quack imposters claiming to be Aryan nations now. And, and, and because of that, I, I, I just... I, I just confronted him harshly, and, and it became like a um, an insult match for the most part. But but I, I thought that was terrible. I wasn't going to stand. I wasn't going to stand down with a clown that was becoming immediately condescending without even ever hearing me. So I just laced into him, and and it didn't work out well at all. But the the podcast is still posted on Christogenia and it will remain there but that was my experience with with Will Williams who claimed he to is, be uh, a successor to anti-Christian yep. and, and it was um, while, while I was promised while Carolyn I do believe sincerely promised me a constructive conversation it was nothing of the sort mm. so 
it, it's um, it's clear that you endeavor to stay on friendly grounds with all white nationalists, re- regardless of their religious profession. And I'm not going to blame you for that. In, in your book, you explain why you have cooperated with groups such as when I when I say your book, you have a bunch. I'm referring to the Ice Path. You explain why you have cooperated with groups such as Skinheads or World Church of the Creator or similar atheistic or pagan leaning groups i I don't you know my listeners are going to say no are 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 bridges between identity christians and pagans or identity christians and creators really possible because it, it it seems to me that there always seems to be a certain crowd who has nothing but antipathy absolutely i'm very selective with who with my work uh there are some creators who have their belief system, but who are not anti-Christian, and with them I can work. But there are some creators who are anti-Christian, and with them I cannot. And this may surprise a lot of your listeners, but Matt Hell, who's the imprisoned former leader of the World Church Creator, is not anti-Christian. That might be hard for some people to believe, but he's actually a personal friend of mine. I correspond with him, and I helped edit and publish his first book, and I'm doing the same for his second, not that I agree with all the tenets in it, but I do it because he's a personal friend of mine, and I believe that his message is good for the white race, and he himself, I believe, was improperly imprisoned and is innocent of the crime for which he was convicted, but because he's a personal friend of mine, he and I debate religion in our letters. And I tease him about certain facets of creativity. And I don't think, honestly, that I will convert him. But he is not anti-Christian. Some creators are anti-Christian. And with them, I will not work. I have no interest in working with them who are anti-Christian. So within creativity, there are some who are and some who are not. And that's also true for you know, Odinism and other forms of paganism and paganism, there are some who are racially conscious and who are not anti-Christian, and then there are some who are. And once again, I will not sacrifice or put my beliefs on a back burner. I will not compromise my faith to work with anyone who is anti-Christian. I will work with white people, regardless of their religious faith, who are not anti-Christian. So that is the line that I draw. And I understand that different people have different standards, and some Christian identists would not work with a non-Christian, regardless. But that is what I choose to do, and that is the line that I draw. But, um, I absolutely will not work with whoever is anti-Christian. Um, you know, it's just it would be impossible for me because my faith in God, my Christian identity, belief, is not something that I would compromise or uh, allow to be denigrated by anyone. Well, well, it's to your credit that in the Ice Path you wrote candidly about your past struggles with the faith. I don't blame anybody for being turned off 
from Christianity when their experience is Judeo-Christianity. And, and I really do try to have empathy for those people because we were all there once. I mean, when I was 36 years old, but before I, before Christian identity found me, when I was 36 years old, I, I was basically an agnostic. I couldn't believe the Catholic Church and the garbage they were telling me. I, I couldn't, um, I, I didn't become intrigued by any of the rhetoric from the Protestant denominations, especially the, um, the, the universalist and pro-Jewish variety of, of um, Protestantism that's taught today. It, it's it's suicidal. It, it's the best religion that Jewish money could buy. So none of that excited <laughs> me. So I didn't know what, I'd never read or studied the Bible. So I had no, um, no idea what to believe at 36 years old. Now, now I, I spent um, 12 years pretty much engrossed in books and and studying all the all of these matters and now I'm firm in what I believe absolutely but but if nobody today nobody today in in worldly white society if you could call it white society any longer you really can't right. in, in the world in in out there in 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 the system nobody today has a compass and, and that's the way our enemies want it, so that they can keep us divided and, and going, like you said, trying to herd cats, right? <laughs> going in everybody in their own direction. They control us through dividing us and, and giving us exactly. five, 500 rabbit holes to, to let us fall into, like. World Church of the Creator, or, or or one rabbit hole or the or the other. Now, now some of those rabbit holes were purposely created by our enemies. Others were created by white men who were sincere, looking to create their own solution or, or a solution to to a problem that they couldn't otherwise find. So I have empathy for those people, but it, it's um. It, it's simply not the truth, and and we as identity Christians should seek continually to bring all of our brethren towards the proverbial light. So I agree. It, it, it's a hard straddle to make, but between um, empathy for your white kinsmen and and wanting to work with otherwise good people and knowing that that um the path that they are on isn't necessarily the right path and, and wanting to bring them over to your path at the same time, that's always a struggle. So, yeah, You ran for um, Governor of Arkansas as recently as 2010 and even tried to get national exposure, as you said, trying to get exposure by running for president in 2012. Most of the listeners at Christagenia are identity Christians who realize that for our race, there is no political solution, but we understand that we all came into our awakening thinking that we could have a political solution. So we should never despise you for running for office, and we don't. How do you feel now about your political endeavors, and would you try it again if you had the opportunity? 
it, I know it's been hard for you, right? You can't work. You, you're you're um, vilified at home now. I, I know it's been difficult. Right, right. Um, well, I wanted to clarify that I also, you know, as a Christian, I didn't believe in no king but Jesus, and I don't believe in a secular authority that's not based on our Christian identity. But even before I was a Christian identist, you know, I also had already recognized that there was no political solution for our racist problems as long as the current regime was in power. And, you know, it's hard for us to really count back how far we would have to go in history to say that the government was legitimate and that, therefore, its power was legitimate authority. But we can certainly say that within our lifetimes, it has not been. Um, when I ran for governor in 2010, I did so not with any hopes or expectations of winning, but simply to be able to use the campaign process as uh, you know, the board pulpit, if you will, to spread our message of white racial survival. And so I would travel around the state, going to candidates' forums and debates, giving speeches at campaign rallies, and basically using my interviews with the media to spread a white nationalist message. And so by doing that, I was able to reach literally thousands of Arkansans who otherwise would never have been reached by me. And um, now, I mean, I, I lost a job and had to move, and uh, it was it was heck, it was rough. But um, I felt like I felt like the opportunity to reach so many people with a white nationalist message was more important than the sacrifice or the cost that it would take. And so I, I did. And I did get a lot of statewide media coverage, even national media coverage. Um, and that was why I did it. Not because I had any illusions about my potential of winning or even anyone's you know, doing anything uh, successfully in the electoral process. And we all know that if voting could change anything, they would have already have made it illegal. But um, I did run for governor in 2010, and I guess that, as bad as it was, I didn't quite have enough because I went ahead and uh, began an abortive campaign for president and a third-party candidate for the 2012 election under the auspices of the Nationalist Party of America, a political party that I founded, is an openly nationalist party. Um, and then also some smaller third parties actually nominated me for the presidential ticket under their party platforms. And that was like the, the Boston Tea Party and a couple of other Tea Party organizations also nominated me as a candidate, even knowing that I was a white nationalist openly. And, and so that actually... Um, was a relatively short-lived process, and then I actually um, advocated my campaign and through my support, such as it was, to uh, Merlin Miller, who was the uh, American Freedom Party candidate, also another white nationalist candidate. But like me, they don't anticipate winning, but they're using the campaign process to spread the message of white racial survival. And I think that's legitimately true of every openly white nationalist candidate who's run for office in the last 
decade or two. I mean, I don't think that when George Lee and Rockwell ran for public office, he expected to win, but he expected to get media attention to spread his message. And I think that's a legitimate use of the electoral process. Um, probably the only legitimate use of the electoral process for us at this time. Well, well, that's good to recognize because we would wholly agree, wholeheartedly agree. It, it's, um, I, I, I don't know if it's measurable how effective it is. I, I'm being honest. I, I don't know if you could, um, really be effective through the media because they, they've, and, and you describe it in, in your book that they, get to the point where they simply the media simply ignores us and 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 that's the most effective method they have of treating nationalists is ignoring them so that they I actually don't get. had two interviews this last week um, where a political writer named William Saturn contacted me out in the blue to ask me my opinion about the Trump campaign and so I gave him a few minutes and actually I guess uh, he then sent me an email back and I clarified one of my statements and it ended up being published on a couple of political blogs, the independent political blog and then one called the American Third Party or something like that. Two you know, political blogs. Now, people can Google my name for the last week and, and, and see them. But um, I kind of actually made that clear to him as well, and he was very fair to give credit. He's probably as fair as far as quoting me verbatim as any political journalist has ever been with me, but like you said, you find that a good way to tell when you're on target and have really honed your message is when they don't publish what you say, and they eventually, when you, when you get a press conference and they stop coming, you know that you're not feeding into the Hollywood Nazi stereotype and you're not giving them the kind of negative images that they'd like to take a picture of. Right. So if you're too successful, too good, then you don't get that media, you know? So it's uh, another one of those difficult balances to reach where you're either flamboyant or controversial enough to get the media attention or shocking enough to get the play to get them to show up to your press conference, but you don't do that negative image that's going to turn off the very people that we're trying to reach. Well, well this the, the latest manifestation is probably Robert Ransdell ran on a campaign um, slogan, With Jews We Lose, for a senatorial seat in Kentucky. But aside from being basically mocked in the media, and aside from his campaign slogan being put into the ears of many people, if those people don't go actively seek why with Choose We Lose, they're never going to get, going to get any of the substance of Ransdell's message. Right, so, right. And, you know, it's just like a grazing, the bullet grazing you rather than penetrating any vital organs. So, um, I was pleased that someone else was trying, and you know, there are a lot of people. I'm certainly by far not the only person who's used the electoral process to spread a message favorable to our race. Um, some have done it more effectively than others. But, uh, you know, the American 
Freedom Party is still doing it. And um, in 2016, I believe that Bob Whitaker is their candidate. And they're basically doing the same thing. They're doing it to have the opportunity to get the message out to the, to the control media. And hopefully, you know, reaching some people. Um, again, like you said, it's always with everything that we do, whether it's a flyer distribution or how much time we spend typing on the Internet, it's always a cost-benefit analysis. So we have to consciously, continually weigh how much time and resources we commit to a specific tactic and what the return on that investment is, how effective it is, and I measure that personally by how many people it might reach either for the first time or to reinforce the initial sowing of the seeds and hopefully they'll bear fruit. But we always constantly have to be responsible for weighing how efficiently we're using our time and other resources. Um, I'm not sure how many good people's time and efforts might be better used in other ways. It's not for me to judge, maybe, but for me, myself, to answer your, your previous question, I tell people that the only way that I would ever again run for public office would be if the electorate re was reverted back to the definition of citizenship, which was established in 1790 with the Naturalization Act of 1790 which states that only white people can be citizens. Now, if that would have happened <laughs> through some miraculous divine intervention, then I would once again consider running for public office. But if that were to happen through divine intervention, it wouldn't be necessary for me or anyone else to run for public office because we'd be taken care of and we'd have the kingdom established. So I don't really anticipate that I'm ever going to run for office again. Okay, that, that's that, that's interesting to hear. And... and um well, well, I think that local politics can be more effective than than anything anything else. If you have to be involved in a political um, in the political arena, that you're better off doing it at, at the town and county levels, and and that's a whole right. separate discussion. But but aside from that, your books, your, your books, and and I have my own. You've taken. Um, very good advantage of all the available social media. I mean, Smashwords and and Books a Million and Barnes and Nobles. Aside from that, you're you're on um, Facebook and Twitter and 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 several other social media outlets, and and you really try to leverage that and and the the, the using the enemies internet. That's how I see Facebook, right? Facebook is exactly. is um. It is good for preaching to the choir, and it's highly compartmentalized. You really have to be outside of Facebook if you have a message. But Facebook is a good place to um, to talk to like-minded people and and to beat ideas off of one another and things like that. So so and and to keep up with with, with news and things like that, but because your friends always help um, introduce you to to stuff you may not have already seen. But so it has its advantages, but you've taken good 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 advantage of the public internet as well. I see you run all all of these um well like Smashwords for instance, you have your biography there and and all your books available as ebooks with, with links to whether available in print and, and that's important that we get that public internet exposure to our message. And and um I think, even though your books are novels, that they can 
be effective tools to introduce otherwise unconscious people to our message and and getting them in all these public venues is really good publicity for the message maybe you want to speak about that I think so uh, I have currently uh, got 11 books in France the first that I had uh, wrote actually was my master's thesis Paleo-American Ethnic Diversity which was a analysis of the evidence that white people were actually in the United States or in North America before the Asians across the Bering Run Bridge because I wanted to undermine what liberals define as being the original sin of America, you know, the right. eradication of the Asians and the Native Americans. And then uh, I actually did that as a master's thesis. But um, since then, I have written two more nonfiction books uh, in the ice path, which you mentioned is partially nonfiction um, it, as an autobiography. And um, one of the few people probably who wrote an autobiography before the age of 45, but I didn't know what opportunity I might have in the future, so I thought I would get while they're getting was good. So I did that. Um, and then also uh, The Balk, which is my most recent nonfiction book. It's a short for balkanization. It's my analysis of the demographic change which has happened in the United States over the last 50 years. But primarily it's an update of Thomas Chittum's Civil War II and the main idea of the bulk is that the United States of America could very well be heading towards balkanization or breakup through racial civil war or economic collapse, political collapse, break up into several racially based smaller states as happened in Yugoslavia, which is where the term balkanization is balkanization. So that's nonfiction. But then my other um, eight books are fiction. And they range from uh, historical fiction discussing Viking exploration and attempted colonization of North America, which is Guam Saga, to a trilogy, which once again addresses through a fictional format the breakup of America and racial civil war. And that is the Haste in the Day trilogy with Haste in the Day and Waiting for the Sun and Wasting the Dawn. And then there's kind of a regional post apocalyptic western novel that I wrote called The Fifth Horseman and then my most recent of course is actually Remnants which is quite a departure for me it, it has some hard science in it which I had a collaborative effort with a former NASA scientist who told me that but it also is an extraterrestrial contact typical science fiction novel but with a twist at the end um, and you and I discussed this, but it's actually a Christian identity twist at the end. And so that was quite a departure for me. And then um, I have three others as well. But obviously different genres with different appeals to different people. Um, the idea being, like you and I were discussing earlier, that a person who might not read a dry political book like the Balk might read a novel, um, something in the like a man's adventure genre. Some of my writing's been compared in a very flattering way to me, to Tom Clancy, and that kind of thing. But um, it's just an attempt to reach more people with our message of white racial survival 
in different ways. That they may not read a, a racialist website, or they might not read Mein Kampf, but they might pick up a, a fiction novel. And, and you know, like people read the Turner Diaries, and you know, I'm not being arrogant enough to say that I'm comparing anything I've written to the Turner Diaries, but for the same reason that it was effective in reaching people who might not have read a, a dry nonfiction book, I believe that my books might be effective in reaching some of the same type of people. Well, well you know, through my, um, my communication with other white nationalists and identity Christians all throughout, all throughout my, my time in prison and, and corresponding with um, people... In, in the free world while I was there, I do get the impression that many more people read the Turner Diaries than my comp. There is no Absolutely. doubt that the, that the scripture tells us, and, and identity Christians certainly believe this generally, that we await the fall of Mystery Babylon, which is the global monetary and mercantile system that currently overlords all world nations all the nations of the world, that there's always a lot of speculation in Christian identity as to how Babylon will fall. We don't know, but your Haste in the Day trilogy of novels seems to capture a lot of that speculation and, and attempt to portray it. Absolutely, and you know, we, we see the future through the glass darkly, like it says, and I have read, like I'm sure you have, well, you know, with Christ Christ. You know, we can read Revelation over and over and over again and it, it takes a lot of study to try to make some, some comprehensive intelligence of it. Um, I certainly, you know, don't know exactly how things are going to work out. I know that I have the faith that I've cheated and read at the end of the book I know that we win. But aside from that, all the details of how we get from here to there, I'm not clear about. So, yeah, I can paste today the trilogy. Um, it's one possibility of how this Babylon could lose power. And that would then create the opportunity for, and actually if you read the series, it's actually the creation of a white nationalist state with Christian identity as becoming more and more of a, a theocracy, really. And, and that's what we we hope will materialize in the kingdom of heaven e eventually, no matter how it happens. We can't read the revelation and see the future. We can only read the revelation and see the past and know that God is true. And and, and take what it says of the future as a warning and, and try to prepare it for ourselves spiritually. Uh, I think that we do that by educating our fellow Christians, our fellow white Christians, and turning them into pro-white Christians and, and educating them not to take this polluted system back, but so that we know what to do when the system falls apart. That, that's my own personal philosophy. Your I love hasten. doing that. I love doing that, especially with Judeo-Christians. I find that in the South, especially in the Bible Belt, some of the more fundamentalist Judeo-Christians that have good racial instincts but are still confused about that Jewish question, Right. if you can just break that from them, then they're really almost right there with us about everything. And, you know, there's so many ways that, that we can do this. I've done it before 
by asking people simply, you know, if your pastor believes that the Jews are God's chosen people, then why is he not encouraging his son to go marry a nice Jewish girl so his grandkids can be chosen? If he's really sincere about it. You know, if they think that that's what makes the Jews God's chosen people. Or then I actually point out the hypocrisy of supporting people who believe, according to their book, that you know, Jesus is pulling in the vat of urine and hell and that, the, that Mary was a prostitute. You point out these things to people and can through showing that hypocrisy. Right. There's all sorts of dissonance in Judeo-Christianity. And, and everything Judeo-Christianity teaches is contrary to the spirit of a white man or woman. It's and and they're taught to believe that those feelings they have deep inside are fleshly feelings. Well, when that's really just the opposite. Yeah, it's a still small voice telling them that it's wrong. Your last your last novel, Hasten, Hasten the Day, was a trilogy um, built around an apocryphal. And I'm sorry, an an apocalyptical scenario. And and your last novel, Remnants, is that sort of a final sequel to the Haste in the Day series, or, or is it the bridge to be the start of something new? It's a different universe. When I you know when I write Haste in the Day in that trilogy, it was optimistic. It was almost Pollyannish. It was really really positive. This is what will happen if we regain control of our destiny as a people, and Babylon falls. Right. So a lot of people said, Billy. You've written these books that are really positive, really optimistic about we're going to win, but we've been doing this for decades now. What if we don't win? What if we don't regain control of our nation or our destiny as a people? Or, you know, more correctly, what if we're not able to return control of our destiny to God where it rightfully belongs? But what if things just continue down this downward spiral the slow decline that they've been on, and yeah, in the next 50 years, white become a minority in the United States, and that's why I say that um, Remnant is kind of like a cross between Blade Runner and Idiocracy. It shows what would happen if we do not win, and if over the next, well, there's two parts of the book, but over the next 500 years, things continue in the slow downward spiral. And it's a very corrupt, third-worlded, cesspooled-out planet that we find left to the point that it is reverted back to the Bronze Age. And there are whites who have survived and have colonized the near-space area with habitats and even own planets and colonies. But most of humanity has been miscegenated, mongrelized. And so it's about what happens when that situation is faced with extraterrestrial contact. And it's like you and I discussed, we could perhaps think, without too much of a stretch of imagination, that if, you know, in Genesis 5, it says that this is the book of the generations of Adam, so the Bible is written for Adam, white man, and their descendants. doesn't talk about the Hottentots or the... Filipinos or the Chinese or the black Africans because it's not written for them or about them. All it talks about them indirectly when our people, our ancestors, encountered them. So I think, I perhaps am 
goes not only on, but I think it's possible to imagine that God may have, since he made other worlds, created life on them, that it's not necessary for us to know about, just like it's not necessary for us to know about blacks or Chinese or Filipinos. The Bible is not written about them. The Bible is also not written about any other beings he might have created anywhere else. So I kind of ran with that possibility in mind, and then God created an order from the chaos. He has a design for all creation, and that creation is like after like, kind after kind, and so based on God's design being such, a being, any sentient life form that promoted God's design would be good, and any life form that went against God's design would be evil. And so the battle of good versus evil, regardless of where it takes place, is still the same throughout the universe. And those are some of the big ideas that I tried to wrestle with and, and wrap together into a 17-chapter book. Which is really a, a science fiction novel with an identity right. undertone or, or overtone at the end. Exactly. Okay, that's interesting. So Remnants is totally detached from Haste in the Day. Even though I think that the, the, the downward spiral, it, if it lasted 500 years, is still pretty optimistic. <laughs> yeah, if there's life at all, right? Right. Well, I, I you know, there's all different shades of gray and degrees of how things might happen. I certainly don't have all the answers. I, I often don't even think I have the right questions, but... I try to, I think that we all share some of the same questions in our hearts, and I try to, while I'm coming to terms with my own, maybe if I'm able to shed some light on other people who have similar questions and at least offer some possibilities out there. On a more serious note, well, well not that the novels aren't serious, they are, I'm sorry, but, but on, on, on a... Um real world note, let me put it that way. Your latest work is with Paul Mullet in a new venture with, which he has named Divine Truth Ministries and, and you're doing a weekly podcast with him. Do you want to speak about that before we end this? Absolutely. Divine Truth Ministries is a Christian identity outreach and it is growing an organizational arm that is called the Nation of True Israel. You know, TI. And the Nation of True Israel has, as one aspect, a membership organization. It will have a forum that will be based on real world white nationalist activism. So it's an opportunity to bridge Christian identity, faith, with white nationalist activism. And so, as you know, with the recent retirement, if you will, of Aryan Nations as an organization, there really is lacking with the exception of some clan organizations, not taking anything away from them, but they do things in their own way, in a more traditional, uniformed way, which we're not really going to be doing. There's really a vacuum of white nationalist, Christian identity, political activism. And we felt like that it was a, a niche that could be filled and should be served. And so uh, Divine Truth Ministries, of which... Uh, Pastor Paul Mullet is a senior pastor, has launched the Nation of True Israel, and if anyone's interested in seeing what it's about, they can go to Divine 
truth.org and they can actually read about the nation of Israel there. But as you also mentioned, there is a weekly radio program. It is Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Central on blogtalk.com and it's unfortunate that it actually overlaps with your program, but I'm very grateful that uh, God granted white man the intelligence to create the technology that we can listen to your program in archive form so we don't actually have to miss out. So that's a good thing. These programs are not able to be listened to at the same time, but we can certainly make sure we don't miss anything. But ours is on Saturday night at 8 p.m. Central on blogtalk.com. It's called Divine Truth Ministries Radio. And uh, Paul Moles and I are the hosts. And we talk about issues of interest to the Christian identity community as well as white nationalist activists. And so it's um, bridging the gap, if you will. But basically, we are Christian identists, but we are white nationalists as well and want to make sure that we encourage real-world, grassroots community activism among our people. You know, it's being light unto the world and... You know, I remember when I was a kid, one of my earliest memories that related to faith, even before I was saved and baptized, was that song, you know, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Going to Let It Shine. I believe that real-world grassroots community activism is just letting our light shine, and we have a calling to do that. So that's what the nation of true Israel is designed to do. Well, well that, that's... That's the problem with Facebook, is that, and, and it's one of the problems I see, is that we have these people on Facebook with three or four hundred people on our friends list, and they post a couple of memes, and they have a couple of conversations, and they feel a sense of accomplishment when, in reality, they've done nothing. You have to do more than just... Right. They haven't reached anybody new. They've preached their choir. They haven't um, actually accomplished anything, except maybe inform us of a new story we may have missed. But but it's not really breaking any new ground. But they do this day after day after day. And, and, and they engage in all these silly arguments day after day after day. And, and they think they've done something. They've done nothing. And, exactly, and if you don't reach new people day after day after day, you're going to continue to be boxing with the air, as Paul called it. it it's, right. Christagenia, my, my website, I'm not bragging, but my website gets like 2,500 visitors a day. A third of them are from Google every day. And that's not all we do. Melissa and I, what we go out once a week, we spend a day out in, in Panama City Beach or some other nearby town. We walk around. We look for people to talk to. I give out Christagenia cards. I drop them everywhere. It, it's, um, we go through tons of them every month. We, we try to spread the message by starting conversations with people or just leaving cards in, in, in bookstores and restaurants. And, and that, that is more effective than people may think. And I do it when I'm on the road. And, and I see that my visitor numbers wherever we go actually go up because we were in those places. 
and I would leave a, a trail of Christogenia business cards behind on tables, in bars, in, in bookstores, wherever we go. And, and I know that helps. And even something so simple as that, if you could drop flyers or, or um, and any drop flyers with a political message or memes on them or anything like that is going to be much more effective than just sitting on Facebook or sitting on Twitter. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, the White Lives Matter project is one very obvious example of that. Flyer drops that just say hashtag White Lives Matter, which people can go to social media and then learn about black and white crime. Be encouraged to believe that yes, white lives do matter. Our lives do matter, at least as much, if not more so, than black lives matter. But people can do red balloon releases that say hashtag White Lives Matter, and they can just create flyers. They can just write the word White Lives Matter. But it does have an impact. If nothing else, it encourages our people that they're not the last sane person left on the planet. That there are other people who maybe not are not in the controlled media limelight, but who do feel the same way that they do. They have the same healthy instincts that they do. And that's extremely, you know, there's, there's nothing more encouraging. I, I was passing out some flyers that say White Lives Matter a couple of weeks ago at the last literature drop. And I, I gave one to an old man in the parking lot of the Walmart, and he thanked me two or three times. And I'm so glad that someone is doing something about this. Right. And all I did was give the guy a piece of paper and it made his day. And you can see, you know, he was about 70 years old. And you can imagine the change he has seen in our nation, in his life. And he was encouraged. There was a fire in his eyes because I handed him a piece of paper and told him Merry Christmas and told him that white lives matter. That's all it took. And that guy, I, I'm not going to be hyperbolic, but his life might have been changed. His outlook for the day certainly was. His heart was quickened, and he was encouraged in the literal sense of the term by that piece of paper. It made an impact on his life, and he may have spoken to other people. There's a ripple effect, but it's very simple to do. And that grassroots activism, that rural contact, cannot be underestimated. There are a lot of racially conscious white people that are sleeping because they think that they are being... um, not not really suppressed, but 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 beaten down by this mainstream media that they're even in the wrong for be, being racially awake. That that's the the mainstream media and the television are just very overpowering. And if they don't hear similar voices and people standing up for what they believe deep down inside, even though they feel that it's being suppressed, that that. They're going to stay suppressed. They're never going to express themselves because they're in fear of that mainstream media and in fear of being labeled as wrong or evil or racist. That when they do see an an activist like you described or, or somebody else taking a stand like you described, it can energize and encourage people to do something for themselves. It, it definitely does. And if they have something to share, like a website, you, you can make things happen. There's I believe no so. Doubt. 
but you have to get off of Facebook and do something in the real world. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, it's been a pleasure. It's been a very short 90 or so minutes. I'm not really sure how long this recording is actually going to be. It, it's around 90 minutes right now. Thank you for your time and for the opportunity. And I uh, look forward to listening to the finished product. And hopefully, um, if people would like, they can check out the Nation of True Israel. And if they'd like to look at some of my books on Amazon, they can maybe find one in the genre that they're used to reading and might enjoy and perhaps could tell other people about. Yes, I'll put the appropriate links with the podcast on my website. I'm sure that'll get them at, at least a few clicks. Thank you for being here, Billy, and, and it's been a pleasure, and we hope to talk to you again in the near future. I look forward to it. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Good night. Okay, bye.